All right. Well, if you were here Wednesday night, you know that we started this discussion on the topic of sexual identity and homosexuality, and we're going to continue in it today. Um, and today, our goal is to talk about sexual identity in Scripture, okay? And I want you to know that from the start, this is half of the conversation, okay? It's not everything that needs to be said. It's part of what needs to be said. Um, and this is such a difficult topic to talk about because it, uh, it is black and white in some sense in Scripture, but the working out of it is not um, just a simple one-sentence answer of, of how do we live in a world like this where homosexuality is a struggle for so many people. And so I just want you to know that today is half of, of the answer and, and mixing in some thoughts with that. But we'll discuss it again at the next uh, Do Not Be Deceived night, which would be next month uh, on a Wednesday night. So I have a video for us to start with just to kind of get our minds starting to think about what I'm going to start in the first point to call confusion, okay? We live in a world of confusion, and I think that this video helps us to see that a little bit. show and before this interview he had a guy named Kirk Cameron on there if you guys know that actor he's in a, like this couple Christian movies um, fireproof and those and um, Kirk Cameron he asked about homosexuality and Kirk Cameron gave a normal Christian response to what the Bible says about homosexuality right ever since that interview Pierce Morgan anytime he has a Christian or a pastor on his show he immediately goes to that interview and wants to ask them what they think about what Kirk Cameron said, and you can hear him already, he's saying what Kirk Cameron said was just a debacle, it was, you know, here Kirk Cameron was saying what he thought were perfectly normal things, um, so he's asking Mark Driscoll now to comment on it, so continue. I, I, I saw some of the Twitter and, you know, some of the blogging and stuff, but that's not always the best snapshot of full context in the conversation, um, so I, I don't know. Well, I, 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 I mean, do you think homosexuality is a sin? The Bible says on six occasions, I believe that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage. So me as a teenager having sex before marriage, that was wrong. People looking at pornography is wrong. Single people having sex is wrong. 
homosexuality is wrong. So there's a long list of things. Right. Given that eight states in America now legalize gay marriage, that's fine, right? Well, no. I mean, it's amazing because there were anti-sodomy laws and anti-fornication laws on the books just a few generations ago. But that will take much account of the anti-fornication. Yeah, I, I don't want to be the one to enforce those laws. No, around. Well, my point is, it, you know, the, the Bible is what it is. It's an extraordinary book, which has right. governed people's moral and personal behavior now for thousands of years. Years. However, like everything in life, shouldn't it be dragged kicking and screaming into each modern era? And be adapted like the American Constitution. Because my, my view about this is, is not that I don't respect Christians or Catholics or whoever who, who absolutely swear by the word in here. It's just that I just don't believe anyone who's genuinely Christian should be spouting bigoted opinions about sections of the community for their sexuality. Well, I think when it comes to the Bible, you've got three options. Take it, I believe what it says. Leave it, I don't believe what it says. Change it. Or adapt or adapt the Which would be the change for a modern era. It'd be the change of That's exactly what, for example, Thomas Jefferson did. He literally sat down in the White House with scissors and cut the parts out that he didn't feel should be in. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so um, there's any number of those interviews. You can see him. He, he interviews uh, Rick Warren, the guy who wrote Purpose Driven Life. He interviews a um, number of different Christian authors and Christian pastors. Um, and he always comes back to that category, right? And did you pick up on what his, his argument there was at the end? What was Pierce Morgan's argument at the end? Pierce bigoted. Oh, bigoted, right? That's a big word he likes to use. Yeah, like Christians shouldn't like, be spewing their beliefs to the community. They're just like towards one section of the people. Right, right. And, and that, you know, he respects Christians so long as they don't use the Bible, kind of, is kind of what he's saying, right? Um, you know, you can hold your faith, you can believe in the Bible, so long as it doesn't conflict with, right now, the modern era, right? Should the Bible be drugged kicking and screaming into the modern era, was one of his quotes. Should we really make the Bible, this ancient book, apply to our lives today? And that's a tough question, right? There's a lot of confusion when it comes to talking about homosexuality, right? Here are some of the words that are used in the topic of sexual identity and homosexuality used in the culture, right? We talk about rights, we talk about inclusion, equality, love, and acceptance, okay? So a couple weeks ago, March 18th, Katy Perry um, won the HRC's National Equality Award, okay? And she did it by compelling advocacy from the stage to the campaign trail uh, for LGBTQ people. Um, it's a message of inclusion and equality, uh, largely toted by her song, I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It, or I think that's the name of the song, or something along those lines, right? Um, and so that's, that's Katy Perry's uh, contribution, and she gets an award for it, right? She gets an award for equality. And, you know, as humans, you know, they, we, we're touted in this argument as if you are not in favor of homosexuality, that means you're not in favor of rights and inclusion and equality and love and acceptance, right? In our day and age, love equals acceptance, okay? If you really loved me, then you would accept how I am. Um, and so that brings us to our question for today in the midst of this confusion. Um, well, first of all, the church traditionally has called homosexuality sin and an abomination. That's actually the words that scripture uses. 
So when you put those words next to each other, you know, who's going to choose the second half, right? Like, yeah, I want to be on the side of calling people in, that they're in sin and an abomination. Not a lot of people do, right? It's not, it doesn't sound very popular. Um, so it begs the question for today. Is homosexual activity a sin that must be repented of, forsaken, and forgiven? Or given the right context and commitment, can we consider same-sex sexual intimacy a blessing worth celebrating and solemnizing? Okay? Um, this is the big question. It's the question that our culture is asking. You know, there are those who have just clearly, flat-out rejected Christians in the Bible and Scripture, and they don't feel like they have a lot of defending to do. But there are those out there who accept Scripture and the Bible, and yet they also accept homosexuality. And so there's this, the invention of something called gay, pro-gay theology, which is we read through the Bible and we find those passages that supposedly talk about homosexuality, and supposedly say it's wrong, and we look at what they really mean and what they're really saying. And the argument is that Scripture isn't condemning homosexuality. Scripture is condemning abusive homosexual relationships. Scripture is condemning people who are participating in homosexual rape, right? Or older person with a child, Okay, this is what scripture is condemning. And so that is one of these big arguments that we have to look at. All right, so we're going to look at scripture now. All right, there's a lot of scripture here. I put it all on the screen um, just so we can follow it. Um, but before we get to the scripture, I want to, as we go through this, at every step along the way, to the best of my ability, not just to give you the church's perspective, but I also want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who wrestles with same-sex attraction, okay? All right, so right from the very start, I want to tell you, if you think you live in a confusing day and age, if you think it's hard for you to know what to think about homosexuality because of the Katy Perrys in the world and the Pierce Morgans in the world and, and what you see in your Facebook feed and Twitter feed and what you hear at school and the fact that you have um, LGBTQ clubs and all that, if you think it's confusing for you, put yourself in the shoes of someone who has lived a very normal life and when they hit puberty, realize that they are different from everyone around them and that they just aren't attracted to the opposite sex, that, it, that in fact they're more oddly fascinated with the same sex and that it's nothing that they chose. They didn't try to do this. They didn't have some sort of thing that happened in their past even all the time. Sometimes they did, but sometimes they don't. And yet they find themselves oddly attracted to the same sex. Can you imagine how confusing it is as a 12, 13, 14-year-old to recognize that you are completely wired differently than everybody around you? All right, so to prepare for today, I've been reading a book called Washed and Waiting. It's by a guy who went to Wheaton College and has since come out as gay, um, come out in the sense that he believes that he has homosexual attraction, and yet a Christian who has chosen to submit to God's word and he tells about how when he was in high school, being gathered around a group of friends who had found a Playboy magazine and were all ogling over it, 
and he looked and realized that it did absolutely nothing for him, that, that nothing in those images excited him, and he can't think of anything in his life that made him oriented the way he is, and yet it's an attraction that he has to the opposite. So I just want you to put yourself in those shoes and think, imagine what it's like, 12, 13, 14, your age, and recognizing I'm completely different. And if you're a Christian and you go to church, that the way I'm feeling, the church has traditionally called this kind of unspeakable sin, this extremely shameful, shameful thing that I can never tell anybody. I can't tell my parents. I can't tell my friends. It's something that I have to hide forever. Just put yourself in those shoes and think about how confusing that is, okay? So let's, let's see what Scripture has to say about it. Well, to start off, on the topic of sexual confusion, all right, or gender confusion, let's say, you know, we're in a day and age where there's people who are switching genders, right? There's transgenders, okay? And there's this question of, can I be born a man or a woman and yet really be on the inside the opposite sex? And, and scripture would just say, no, you can't. But in the beginning, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God created our genders. God created two genders. We live in a day and age where there's possibly the invention of a third gender, or people are saying, I'm, I'm a third gender. I'm asexual. I'm not one or the other, right? Um, that gender is actually infused at birth. That this is what the Bible teaches us. You know, when Maeve was born just a, a month ago, the doctor said, well, tell your wife what it is. And I didn't need a PhD to figure that out. And I didn't need to tell my little, or tell the doctor, well, we'll wait until she's 15, and then we'll see what she decides that she is. Right, it. What it decides it is. Okay, it sounds so impersonal. It was, it was very easy to say, it's a girl. And I'm not just saying it's biologically a girl, but in puberty we'll figure out if it's really a boy on the inside. Right? God created the gender, and he made the male and female. Now, one of the popular arguments for pro-gay theology is that Jesus didn't believe this stuff. That Jesus doesn't even talk about it, and that's just not true. And, and this is one of the things I want you guys to be aware of, is you're going to hear arguments, and you're going to hear them said very forcefully, and some of them just aren't true. Okay? So you need to leave that possibility there, okay? So Jesus says in Matthew 19, 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus is quoting Genesis. Jesus is saying that God made male and female. Now, for those, again, put yourself in the shoes of someone who wrestles with their gender identity. It's no small matter, it's no laughing matter to realize that you don't feel the way that your biological gender is, okay? It's hard to be a male and recognize that you have feminine inclinations. You're just drawn to those things or to be a female and feel far more masculine than any of the girls around you. But scripture is showing us that no matter how hard it is, the answer is never to say, well, I must really be a man inside a woman's body or I must really be a woman inside a man's body. That's never the answer. That your gender has been given to you by God. And it, you know, Scripture tells us that we're knit together in our mother's wombs. That, that before you were born, God knew you. That this is not an evolving thing where you can figure it out. That God determined it before the beginning of time. 
Okay, so that's on that topic. Um, and then, let's see here, we're not quite there yet. Sex. God made sex. We see in Genesis, he made it good, and he made it between one man and one woman. So back in Genesis, God made them male and female, and he immediately says, be fruitful and multiply. Right? So he made them man and woman so that they could have children, so that they could be fruitful, have children, and fill the earth. And again, we don't need a biology degree to know that homosexual sex does not result in any fruitfulness, that there are no children that come out of that. And so we see from the very beginning that sex was made in a way that was supposed to be reproductive. And then he says in Genesis 2 that they're to leave home to hold fast to one another and to become one flesh. And so right from the very beginning that sex is described between one man and one woman. And again, did Jesus believe this? Yes, 19, Matthew 19, 4, he goes on to say after he quotes that he made the male and female that they should be one flesh and be united to one another. So Jesus believed this. He quoted this. And so the implication is that all sex outside of God's plan is condemned. And we're not just talking about homosexuality. We're talking about all different sexual acts. And we see this in Leviticus. Okay, So Leviticus is the Old Testament law. And I want you to see this passage here. This is one that a lot of people quote. Um, we once had a speaker come uh, to Wheaton College who had come out of the gay community, and he made the joke, I always thought it was funny, that first of all, he made the joke about how Christians are always, he, he had always experienced hate from Christians, right? And at the, he would go in, the, in these pro-gay parades and things like this, and there'd be the Christians off on the side yelling and screaming at them, and they'd have these signs that said, Leviticus 18, as if he and his gay buddies were going home and reading Leviticus afterwards. He, he made that. I was, I was hilarious. He said, um, anyway, so here's Leviticus 18, right? I put it in bigger context so that you can see everything it says here. It says, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. We call that adultery, right? You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. So we're listing a whole bunch of sexual sins here. Okay? And in the list of this sexual sins comes, do not lie with a male as with a woman. It's directed to men. Okay? So we're describing a homosexual relationship. Now, one of the popular arguments I already said is that Pro-gay theology says that, well, the Bible only con is condemning abusive homosexual behavior. It's only condemning rape and things like that, not loving, consensual relationships where they're both in love with each other. And when we read this passage, what we see is it, it actually, it doesn't give us any sort of idea that says, well, it's, this is a rape situation. This is just saying... Blankly, this is never okay. And, and just to make it even clearer, we could go to Leviticus 20.13 and it says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. A couple things this tells us. First of all, it tells us that this is consensual sex. Because later in Deuteronomy, it tells us that when a man rapes a woman, the man is punished and the woman isn't, because she's a victim. 
but in this passage, it's talking about a man lying with a man, and they're both punished, which is just saying they're both involved. They're both consensual. They, they might be in love with each other. They might say they love each other, and they both want to. It doesn't matter. It's a sin, and it's condemned. Now, there's a couple issues to clear up when we read something like this. First of all, this is not telling us today that we ought to hate homosexuals and put them to death. Okay, that's not what this is saying. Helpful to put it in a little context. Um, Two verses or three verses before this, it says, for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So if you're going to take the argument that homosexuals should be put to death, then sure hope you're nice to mom and dad because you're in the same boat. So that's definitely not the application of this. This passage is found in the Old Testament law, and we have learned that the law is what Jesus came to fulfill. And when he died, he took upon himself the punishments of the law so that we might be free from those punishments. And anyone else might be free from those punishments. So, so these condemnations of death upon them and upon us, we're freed from those. This is what grace is, okay? You might say, um, I already talked about that, um, does it apply today? Okay, if, if Jesus fulfilled the law, does this still apply today then? Couldn't we just say it doesn't really apply anymore? And the answer is no, we can't say that because while Jesus fulfilled the punishment of the law, the morality of the law has not changed. That the morals contained within the Old Testament law are still here. All right, so that's that. Let's keep moving here. Um, let's move to the New Testament. So it's obviously condemned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We get this passage. Again, I gave you context so you can see. It says, Or do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, which is where the title of our series comes from. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we see once again, Clearly, homosexuality is condemned. Clearly, it's condemned. But it's also condemned alongside a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay, so the reason I chose this verse is we're talking about sexual immorality in here. and We're talking about our own sexual immorality, haven't we? Over the past year, we've talked about our own lusts and our own how we've given in to temptations and impure relationships. And it's put right alongside those who practice homosexuality. So yes, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, right alongside all these other things that we do all the time, whether or not you wrestle with homosexuality. Another example is in 1 Timothy. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So again, it's a sin right along with everything else. Are there any questions on this? I mean, if if you guys walked out of here with one thing, I don't want you to walk out of here with one thing. I want you to walk out of here with a couple things. But one of them being, the Bible is very clear. It's black and white that this is a sin. Okay. Last one. Romans 1, 24 through 27. This is probably the clearest verse. It says this. 
Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, this is talking about the Gentiles, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And if you think, well, that might talk about anything, natural relations, what's he talking about? The Greek word for relations is used primarily to talk about sexual relations. Okay, He has in mind sexual relations. They gave up what's natural for those contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Okay, so clearly we're describing homosexual acts here that involve men and women, men with men, women with women. He says that they are contrary to nature. He says they're dishonorable passions. He says they're shameless acts worthy of a punishment. Now that's really hard to hear if you have a friend who says they're gay. That's really hard to hear if you're sitting here thinking, am I gay? Because I have attractions in this direction. Is this, what does this mean for me? I want you to think and, and just imagine for a minute, because this is the experience of this guy, Wesley, who wrote this book that I've been reading. This is his experience. He grew up in the church, and, and he sits here as, as a teenager with attractions that he didn't choose and hears this out of the Bible and from the pulpit, and how is he supposed to feel? How is he supposed to feel when he would say, I don't think that I chose this. This just started happening inside me. Is he supposed to feel ashamed? Is he supposed to feel dirty? Is he supposed to feel unworthy? Is he supposed to feel condemned? How, how does it feel to hear that you're an abomination to God? What's he supposed to do? Well, that's where I want us to go because I think scripture is really clear on the black and whiteness of it, but we definitely cannot end there because to say that this is all that scripture says, it, it would be cruel. Because it's not all that scripture says about homosexuality. Scripture says a whole lot more about homosexuality than that. But it's speaking not just to homosexuals, it's speaking to all sinners. To you who struggle with lust. To you who struggle with lying. To you who dishonor your mom and dad. The Bible has a lot to say to all of us. And, and here's a number of them. It tells us that the church is a hospital for sinners and not a hotel for saints. We all come to church with the common knowledge that we're sinners, or at least we should. That this place is a place where sinners gather, and we don't shame one type of sin above another. We've notoriously done that with homosexuality. But can you imagine if we did that with um, greed? If we did that with greed, when, when the rich people walked into church, who weren't tithing, really, all that money that they had, what if we just shamed them? Or, or what if we shamed single mothers who'd had sex out of wedlock and had children? That wouldn't seem right. We do it with homosexuals all the time, okay? So it's not a place where we're supposed to say, well, there's unspeakable sins and those people aren't allowed in here. The truth ought to drive us toward homosexuals and not away from them. The truth of the gospel should say there's hope, there's life. Please come in through our doors. Did you know that after almost every prohibition of homosexuality in the Bible, we find beautiful affirmation that God is merciful and that there's redemption? 
So 1 Corinthians, we saw men should not practice homosexuality. Right after that, it says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's very quick to say, you wrestled with this, Corinthian church, and Jesus washed you. And in 1 Timothy, he, he says, condemns homosexuality, and then he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Paul doesn't say, and they shouldn't be allowed in the church. He says, Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him the eternal life, for eternal life, all right? Um, second, the church is a community defined by repentance and faith out of obedience to God's word. Culture tells us that acceptance is what love is. That we aren't loving unless we say, I accept you. I'll tell you what, I have a daughter and she's very rebellious because she's two. Okay? She gets out of her bed all the time. She opens her drawers that have children locks on them that she figured out in about three hours. She pulls all of the clothes out of her drawers and throws them around the room. She climbs up onto the top of her dresser and pulls all the binkies out of the top drawer and she hoards them, trying to get them all into her mouth or at least under her armpits so that when you come in, she throws herself on the ground and hides them so you can't take them. Would it be very loving of me to say, sweetheart, I accept you just the way you are. Never change. Stay rebellious. Don't obey your parents. Well, that wouldn't be very loving, right? The church is a community that's defined by repentance and faith. It's not a community that's defined by accepting people just for who they are. Okay, Jesus, in the gospel, he says, the time is fulfilled at the beginning of his ministry, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what we're defined by. We're defined by a life of repentance and belief in the gospel. We're defined by saying the scriptures tell us what's true, and when our lives aren't in accordance with it, we repent and we say, God, help me. Help me to live in line with the scriptures. And so it is incredibly wrong for churches to say we embrace homosexual practice and it is not a sin, and we are going to... Uh, uh, ordain homosexual priests, and we're just going to say it's fine. That's not helping anybody. This is a church where we're supposed to be repentant and coming to faith. So the Bible tells us that the greatest act of love isn't when God accepted us for who we are. That's not the greatest act of love. The greatest act of love is when he sent Jesus to die for who we are. And Jesus died for who we are so that if we repent and accept Jesus, God will accept us and give us his Holy Spirit to help us to change from who we are and become who he created us to be. Okay, so that's what we're supposed to be all about. Not about staying who we are. The Christian life requires us to deny our own desires and passions and follow Jesus. Popular argument in the homosexual world is that it's just who I am. The desires are so strong, I can't change. Put yourself in their shoes. It's incredibly challenging to be in that position. That being said, Scripture says, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life is rarely comfortable or easy. It's a life of denying the ingrained desires that we have and following Jesus. 
The Christian life is one where God lets us struggle so that we will learn to depend on him. We never are told that the Christian life is the life of least resistance or easy one. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how God gave him a thorn in the flesh, and three times he pleaded with God that it might be removed. Wesley, in his book, says, this is how I feel. I, I, I said to God, the gospel condemns homosexuality. Will you please remove it from me, God? And God hasn't done anything to change his desires. And yet, in that passage, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're never told that this life is easy. That when we don't feel like following Christ's ways, that Christ's ways need to change. Rather, that God will give us the grace and meet us in those ways. And, and finally, the Christian life is just one chapter out of a much bigger book. Wesley says, the thing that helps me the most is knowing that my life is just one chapter out of a much bigger book. That, that my story of being a, a Christian who's passionate about Christ, who has same-sex attraction, my story is in this bigger story of the gospel and redemption history. Perhaps one of the most challenging applications for someone who's gay is that they have to come to the conclusion that God has given them no righteous outlet for them to act on their sexual desires. You guys know that we live in a world where every teeny bopper movie, every chick flick, almost every song on the radio is about finding the one you love. And whether it's about just having sex with them or getting married to them or whatever it is, it's about this companionship and love and for the homosexual person, that is found in another person of their same sex. And yet, if they want to follow scripture, they, as a, as a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, they have to come to the conclusion that if I want to follow Christ and obey scripture, then I have the next 80 years of living by myself. And I'm not going to get married. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that just, just if, if my application for you was... You're never going to get married. That's the life that God has for you. That's a hard one to swallow. Either God's going to have to change their desires, and Wesley said he's asked God to change his desires, or he has to accept that God has chosen for him a life of hardship where he is never going to experience the sexual satisfaction that he desires deep down inside of him. And, and that's why most people reject Christianity at the end of the day. That's why they reject the Bible, is they just want to give in to their desires. And they can't imagine that a God would love them enough, or love them and tell them they couldn't give in to their desires. But one thing that helps Wesley is to know that his chapter, his 80 years on life, if it's 80 years, is a small chapter in the midst of all eternity. And, and that God's word is clear. It's black and white saying that Men who practice homosexuality, women who practice homosexuality, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to enter the eternal kingdom of heaven. And so you put 80 years next to eternity, which there's no hand here. Eternity just keeps that way, okay? And, and it's a short chapter. It's a hard chapter. But it's one that at the end of the day 
is going to end with peace and joy and satisfaction and unity with God for the rest of the time, all of time. So there's a lot more we could say, um, and we're going to say more at the last time, but I, I have a couple, four things I want to end with. This is particularly for the person who wrestles with same-sex attraction. Um, if you are the person who says, I might be gay, I might be gay, this is, this is the way I'm attracted, um, these are for you, and, and if you aren't that person, I think you'll find that there's a lot of application for you too. First, I would say this. You have to know that you are dearly loved by God and no different from any person in his eyes. That no matter what the church has done and what they've said in the past, that God does not say that your sin is far worse than any other sin. That when he looks at you, he sees the exact level of sinfulness as a guy who's looking at pornography or the girl who's sleeping with her boyfriend or the liars or thieves, that we are all filled with desires to go against God's design. And he says to each and every person, come to me and I will give you life. He doesn't say it's going to be easy, but he does say it's going to be worth it. Second, trust what scripture says about homosexuality. Don't believe the lie that you are smarter than God. Don't believe the lie that you are more advanced in this modern era than God. That his word was good for the last 2,000 years. Actually, it was written longer than that, but, but for the sake of argument, good for the last 2,000 years. And now we progressed beyond it. That's a horrible lie to start believing horribly arrogant line to start believing. Third, know that faithfulness to God and obedience to his ways will always lead to the best possible outcome for you, even if you don't reach your desired outcome until you get to heaven. Wesley Hill says, faithfulness is never a gamble. It will be worth it. The joy then will be worth the struggle now. In the end, I think that is how I'm learning to live faithfully as a homosexual Christian. Faithfulness is never a gamble. It will be worth it. All right? And fourth, don't isolate yourself. You need help. You can't live the Christian life with a big secret in your closet forever. This struggle may last you your entire life, and it may seem like the hardest possible thing to come out and tell someone that you are wrestling with homosexual desires, but you must. You can't fight it on your own. You have to let the church be the church for you. Be a community that wraps itself around you. You must acknowledge that you are like them. You're not different from the people in the church. You are just like them. A sinner who needs the grace of God. And if you need someone to tell first, tell me. And I can tell you about how I've wrestled with my own homosexual attractions. And you can know that you're not alone. I hope you do. I hope you tell me. Um, if you're struggling with that, so that we can help. And I'm not going to tell people. <laughs> I'm not going to out you to other people or whatever it is. We want to pursue life and healing together. So that's all I have to say for today. Um, that's what scripture has to say to us. Uh, if you have questions, I know that it kicks up a lot. Please talk to me. Don't just walk away and say, well, my friend in English class said this, and I think they're right, and Nick's wrong. 
Can you give Nick a chance to respond, respond to your friend in English class and what they said, please? I would love to, okay? And not because I want to be right, but because I think that there's a lot writing on this for you and your friend in English class, okay? Let's pray. Lord, I just um, thank you for each one of these students. I thank you that your grace is sufficient for them and sufficient for me um, day in and day out. And God, we pray particularly for those who are wrestling with these same-sex attractions, these desires. God, that you would meet them in a way that powerfully affirms your love for them and powerfully affirms the power of Scripture and the truth of Scripture for them to lead them in the right way. We pray that the church would be the church for them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you didn't get the sign-up sheet for high schoolers, make sure you sign up for this Friday so we can order lots of wings.